You're listening to Tara Garrity with Making Cancer Fun Story, a daughter with neuroblastoma. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, Rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries, the list goes on, and then you still may not have all the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. And I also think that I was somebody who always lived in the future. You know, I will be happy when, I'll be happy when I achieve this, when I get this promotion, when I um, have this happen in my life. And that started in high school, right? I'll be happy when I graduate high school. I'll be happy when I get to college. I'll be happy when I graduate college. Like I was always living in the future of when something happened, I would be satisfied and happy. And it shifted that completely because there's no future in cancer. You have no idea what the next day or the next week is going to bring. And it forces you to just be really grateful for that moment in that presence. Hello, and welcome to the Child Life on Call podcast. I am so, so happy you are here for this incredibly special episode. And who am I kidding? I literally think every episode of this podcast is special, which is why I started this podcast in the first place. So, but yes, today's episode is so special. So I am so glad that you are here. So moving on, this is the first episode of 2020, and it just feels so good to be in a new decade, new year, fresh start. I totally buy into all that cheesiness of writing down goals and resolutions, and I really do think it makes a difference to manifest positivity. And this decade and this year marks my 11th year of going into the field of child life. So some of you may not know this, but child life is kind of my second career. Straight out of college, I worked for a nonprofit called the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children in Northern Virginia. And I coordinated their outreach program to law enforcement, educators, and parents about the importance of online safety. And it just boggles my mind to think about how much has changed in this time since I did that job. But I really think the constant presenting and traveling and meeting new people that I did in that role helped prepare me for child life because we're always meeting new families and new people, new physicians, new disciplines, and having to introduce ourselves and constantly present about child life and and the work that we do and tips and tricks for working with kids. So I'm very thankful for that part of my life, but it just seems so crazy. That was like, not even like the last decade, but the decade before. And anyway, so enough about me. We have to get to Tara. Uh, Tara is mama to Emily, who was diagnosed with stage four neuroblastoma. She's also the president and founder of Making Cancer Fun. She is an author, a webinar host, a TEDx talk speaker, and just an all-around inspiring person. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Tara. Yeah, so it was interesting because 
Emily had started to kind of show some random symptoms. And this was in May of 2009. And so I was just getting, I was just in the middle of, I should say, I was just in the middle of this crazy domestic violence divorce. She had just started doing overnight visits with her dad. And so a lot of the symptoms we attributed to maybe stress and stuff that was going on, you know, personally, kind of went back and forth with the doctors for about six months. And, you know, one of the things with neuroblastoma, which was her ultimate diagnosis, is it's never in your blood. So all the blood tests are coming back fine. And nobody ever thinks, you know, my kid has a stomach ache, my kid has diarrhea, my kid has, you know, these random things that, oh, it must be cancer. Like it's nobody ever thinks that even the doctor didn't think that. And so really by the time she had a full diagnosis, it was two days before Thanksgiving. And at that point, her tumor had metastasized. It had broken through and her, her lungs were collapsing. And so one lung was completely collapsed. The other one was about half collapsed. And it's crazy to think about because they had said to me later, you know, had I not brought her to the emergency room and just kind of waited and, you know, given her another day to kind of see how she did, uh, she would have suffocated in her sleep. So literally in the emergency room, they were doing, you know, emergency surgery to try to drain this fluid out of the lungs and, and stabilize her and save her life. And they knew, you know, I think they knew right away. She was very classic neuroblastoma. We went to a major children's hospital. They had an oncology department, but obviously until they biopsy and everything, they don't know for sure. Um, and what, what I tell people is it's so nuts to think about now, but when they first said the word oncology to me, I was so naive. I didn't know what oncology meant. And so when they said, we're going to have an oncologist come talk to you, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I had no clue. No frame of reference, was. right? Nope, not at all. Um, and you know, how old my, was she at this time? So she was three and a half. Three and a half. Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And so her official diagnosis was she was a stage four high risk neuroblastoma. And again, what's kind of interesting about that is I chose very purposefully not to share her stage with people. I told people she had neuroblastoma, but never that she was stage four. And the reason I did that was for two reasons. One, I, you know, when you hear stage four, when somebody says I have stage four lung cancer or stage four anything, we tend to automatically put one of their feet in a grave, right? It's like, oh, well, you're done. And I didn't want to personally have to deal with the reactions of people. If they heard my daughter had a stage four diagnosis, I didn't want them to kind of write her off. And I also didn't want their maybe fear or their sadness or their grief over that to then transfer to her. Because a three and a half year old has zero idea what cancer means. You know, it does not carry the same weight, the same fear. It means nothing to them the way it does to an adult. And so I think my mother and my sister were the only ones who knew her real diagnosis. Even the rest of my family, I didn't tell. And it wasn't until years, years later that she was done with treatment and had been transferred to a survivor's clinic and was a true survivor before I started telling people that she was a high-risk stage four. Wow, that's such an interesting way to handle it. And I, I really admire you for having that like level of consciousness at that time to kind of understand that. Um, that's just so interesting. It kind of introduces us into the way that you didn't always handle this cancer treatment in the most traditional way. Um, and we'll get to that in a little bit, but 
Do you mind talking with us about when they gave you that diagnosis? Kind of who did you lean on? What did you what did you do? What did it feel like when you first heard those words? So the first person I called was actually a coworker who was a breast cancer survivor. And I felt like she would understand, you know, having had that diagnosis given to herself. And so that was a really big support. I do remember feeling like I was levitating for about two weeks, even when they got the final, even when they got the biopsy back and they had a final diagnosis. I remember sitting in this kind of parent lounge room with a fellow and a doctor and they're going over her treatment and what they were going to do. And I remember sitting there looking at my hand and thinking, I was not attached to my body anymore. I felt like I was about two inches out of my body looking at my hand and going, I see that that's my hand. And I wonder if they can tell that I'm like levitating outside of my body. <laughs> and it felt that way, I want to say for a good two weeks where I would look at my hand and go, okay, I see my hand. And I just did not feel like I was attached to my body. The first night they put us, you know, so we're in the emergency room. They obviously check us into the hospital. And the first night I remember waking up in the intensive care unit. And I don't know why, but I remember everything appearing to be yellow. And I don't know if that was just the lights and maybe, you know, because she was on precautions. And so everyone's wearing the yellow gowns. I, I don't remember, but I remember waking up in the hospital bed with her. I was sleeping with her in the bed and she's hooked up to all the stuff and the tubes and everything, waking up and being very disoriented. Like, where am I? You know, this is, my, <laughs> this is not my, my room. Where am I? And then all of a sudden the, that night, you know, events kind of flooding back to me and, the, you know, the cancer and all of that and thinking to myself, like in a very Scarlett O'Hara way, right? I, I will handle this in the morning. I will go back to sleep and I, I will think about this tomorrow. And I laid my head back down and went to sleep because it was like, I just can't even right now. Um, so that's it. So in the beginning, it was this very out of body experience. The first time I, I walked down the hall and saw a, a little boy, I don't even know who it was. I remember seeing this little boy walking with his mom and he had a bald head. And this was a couple of days later, they transferred us to the oncology floor and feeling like I was going to pass out in the hall because I had never seen a bald kid outside of maybe a St. Jude's commercial. Right. And thinking like, how am I here? Like, how is this my life? Like other people's kids get cancer. Other people put their kids on TV and raise money, but this isn't my kid. Like, how is this happening? So I think everybody goes through a different shock, right? We all handle shock and grief differently. And I don't think there's a right or a wrong. It's just how you, you know, how you handle it. And that's me based on previous experiences and your coping skills and what you bring to the table. But there's definitely, I would imagine with any life-changing diagnosis, cancer or a long-term diagnosis that your child has to deal with, that there is this moment of shock and then a, a deep grief, you know, of this is not what I planned. How did this happen? Um, the one thing I did never did, which I feel was a benefit, is I never went through, which I hear a lot of a lot of parents share, is this why me? You know, I think that's a, a really useless question. I hear a lot of people say they struggle with this, like, why did this happen to me? Why why was my child? And I've always said I feel it's a very narcissistic question because why not you? You know, what makes you think you're so special that your kid shouldn't get cancer, right? Like nobody gets through life without that thing happening to them. And so I never went down that rabbit hole of why me because it doesn't lead anywhere. And I didn't feel, I, I don't feel like I'm any more special than somebody else, but I shouldn't have bad things happen in my life, you know? Um, and so 
the only thing I did think to myself all the time was that even though she had a very low survival rate when it comes to childhood cancer, one of the lowest, uh, I would always say to myself, well, why not me? You know, why not her? Someone's going to live, right? Someone's going to be that, even that 1%, that they go, oh my gosh, you know, nobody survives this, but 1% will. Somebody's going to be that 1%. Um, you know, why not me? Why can't it be her? If someone's going to live, why? I would say that all the time. If someone's kid's going to live, why not mine? And I think that was very, very important for my mindset. Oh, I, I love that because, you know, I've never even thought about it in that way. It's, it's so when people give you any kind of percentages or prognosis, you're kind of putting yourself in the, in the dark part, not really the light part. Right. So if you focus on the light part, you know, you, you kind of manifest in that way. Absolutely. And it's interesting that our brain does go to that worst. And I don't know, I mean, I've always said, even with adults who get a cancer diagnosis and they'll say, oh, you have so many months left to live Mm. or whatever. Um, I don't know why that we're actually allowed to do that because I do believe that then you start to manifest and believe what, what you were told. And, you know, I know a childhood cancer survivor who survived cancer twice. Um, He was given, I think, a few months in his first prognosis, his parents were told he had a few months to live. And then his second prognosis, which was a couple of years later, I think they gave him like 12 or 13 days to live. And he is now, you know, an adult and married. He's the first cancer survivor to summit Mount Everest with, and he only has one lung. I mean, he has a crazy story of survival. Um, it's so inspiring, right? But imagine if he had, you know, listen, what imagine if they believed that, oh, you only have 13 days left. So nobody really knows, right? We have kids who do phenomenal through cancer treatment and then still they lose their war, you know, and we lose those children. And you have other kids who don't do as great through treatment and then still manage to, you know, push on. And particularly in the cancer world, there's so much unknown. And, you know, my thing is, is if, if they knew, like all kids get this, if you get a diagnosis and you're, you know, at a children's oncology group hospital, all kids get the same role, kind of roadmap treatment program. It's all based on protocol. And so they're kind of getting the same drugs. And if you know, if you get this diagnosis, this is kind of the roadmap that you'll take. And so if you just look at it from a science standpoint and you say, okay, well, they all get the same roadmap. How can they all have different outcomes? Right. Even like with late effects or long-term effects, like some, you know, my daughter has hearing loss. She wears hearing aids. I know a lot of neuroblastoma kids who don't, you know, so you don't really understand, you don't really know why some kids respond a certain way or don't. And so to say, well, we know, you know, this is the, how much time you have left, or this is the percentages. It's irrelevant because each case is so unique and each child is so unique. And, you know, why someone's going to be the exception. Someone's going to be the miracle, you know, and that's why I always call, we I started calling her the miracle kid. I used to call her miracle baby. That was um, kind of the, the phrase that I took for her. We had a big poster in her room that said miracle baby, you know, her name and that she was a miracle baby. And I told her that what that meant was that a miracle kid was a kid who, you know, did even better than their doctors would think they could do. So whatever the doctor said you could do, you're going to do even better than that. And I just kept telling her that over and over again. And so for a long time, until she was much older, she would just, you know, she would refer to herself. She's like, oh, I'm a miracle kid. I'm a miracle kid. And we've kind of kept that, that I, I don't like calling them cancer kids. There's something that kind of puts that onto their, you know, it's almost like that that defines who they are. And it really doesn't. Right. And, um, 
we call them all miracle kids. <laughs> I love that. I really like that. Yeah. Um, it's so much more life giving. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, I'm just kind of wondering, and this is a really loaded question, but can you just give us a little synopsis, a kind, kind of about what your cancer journey was like? So she was diagnosed with neuroblastoma and what did that treatment look like for you guys, uh, being in the hospital and side effects? And can you just tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah. So hers was pretty intense because by the time it was diagnosed because of the, um, chylus effusion with her lung, she actually had a chest tube for a couple of months. And that was really, really tough in the beginning because they could not get the fluid to stop. And I remember we started where they put her on a low-fat diet. Then they put her on a you know rationed diet. Uh, at one point, she was completely NPO, which was horrible because you have your three-and-a-half-year-old and she wants to eat, and you're telling her she can't eat at all. I mean, it, I literally felt like I was, you know, tormenting and, and torturing this child because yes, she was on TPN and she was going to have, you know, food, but uh, she, you know, she was getting her nutrients to her TPN, but the child was hungry, you know? And um, at one point we had to even ration down how many ice chips she could have. It was just, it was so horrible. Um, so what we used to do is a gum buffet where we'd go down and, and get all these different kinds of gum and she could put the gum in her mouth chew the gum and then spit it out. And it kind of just, mentally helped that feeling. And so friends started hearing about that and sending them all different kinds of flavors of gum. And we would make a big deal that she'd have a gum buffet for dinner and which ones did she want to eat? Um, because eating is such a, it's more than just the hunger feeling, right? It's this like psychological piece. And so kind of telling a child you can't eat at all uh, was, that was probably the worst, worst part. And when we checked in because she was so, so sick at that point, we checked into the emergency room and we did not have our first ditch charge until 78 days later. So we spent Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, like all the way, I think until, you know, maybe the end of January, February before we went home for the first time. And then she did six rounds of chemo. And what would happen was she would get discharged and we would go home for maybe, you know, two days and then she'd run a fever and then we'd be back in the hospital and then by the time she would clear whatever that infection was, it was just ready to start the next chemo round. So really for that first, from like November until probably July, we basically were in the hospital. I mean, if we went home, it was for a few days here, a few days there, but that was it. Um, and I mean, at one point, you know, I started to refer to the hospital as the hotel. Like I just felt like we moved in and that's where we lived. <laughs> and, uh, and it would be weird. Like I remember coming home one time and I was trying to get something in my kitchen and I pulled out the drawer under the microwave to look for something, realizing that that's not where my stuff was, but in the hospital, that's where it was under the microwave. Right. <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, so you just kind of adapt to like, this is my life. I live here now. Um, so she did the six rounds of chemo. Then she, uh, we, she did what happened after that. She did a bone marrow transplant. And then after her bone marrow transplant, we did radiation. And I don't know how many, she did weeks of radiation. It was like through the summer. And then, and obviously, and she had surgery that it took about eight hours to take the tumor out. So she did have a, the tumor taken out before they did the bone marrow transplant. So it was the six rounds of chemo, the taking the tumor out, the bone marrow transplant, the radiation. And then her last, um, maybe like five or six months, she did immunotherapy, which I don't know how it is now. I know at the time it was 
it was optional and it wasn't FDA approved. So you have to go through, you know, you sit for three hours while they make you sign off every single paper you can imagine. Um, and kind of just telling you the worst case scenarios of what could happen. But they also knew that it increased her survival rate 20%. So the kids who lived through it, you know, they would, they would have a higher survival rate. And I know now they have other options. Like I know some kids who are getting uh, vaccines or there was one time when they were doing a double bone marrow transplant. So it's always, you know, changing when she went through her treatment, that's what she did. And um, what was difficult really was that when you're done and, you know, you've just lived through this kind of war, you know, they give you a cake and they're like, okay, go home. And she, you know, she had her, she had a Broviac. And so, you know, a couple, like a month later, they take out the Broviac, right? And I remember she ran a fever. And at this point, you know, she's four and a half, um, maybe almost five. And she runs a fever. And I, I call the hospital. I'm like, she has a fever. I need to come to the emergency room. And they said to me, oh, you know, she's had her Broviac taken out. So you don't need to get to the emergency room. Um, you can just, you know, take care of her the way you would like a normal, you know, four or five-year-old. And I remember hanging up the phone and being hysterical and calling my mother and saying, I, I don't know what that means. I, I don't know how to take care of a normal four or five-year-old. I've never had a normal four or five-year-old. What do I do? Why won't they see her at the hospital? I want them to see her. <laughs> like, you know, um, so there's this like readjustment back into this new normal, you know, even when they finally, they scanned her for five years. Uh, after treatment and when they wanted to do the last scan I remember you know saying to her oncologist no she needs to be scanned every year for the rest of her life and her kind of saying you know we don't really we don't really do that Tara and I thought but you know she goes well we'll do lab work and we'll do stuff like that and I was like yeah but she had cancer and her lab work came back fine and nobody knew so the lab work means nothing to me I want you to scan my child forever <laughs> you know because there's this fear, like something could be growing and you don't know. And because it took so long to get her diagnosed. And so there's, I think as parents, this whole anxiety, not just when you're going through treatment, but they don't really talk about that when you're done with treatment. I have to ask you 10 years out, what is that like for you now? Um, yeah. So now she's 13 and she is doing great. I mean, not just a survivor. She truly is a thriver. She's doing phenomenal. Um, and it's interesting because I, I don't know that that tightrope ever goes away. I think it was a number of years, I would say, before we could really go for her follow-up visits without, you know, the two weeks before and the two weeks after feeling that anxiety. I remember we would, you know, about two weeks before we would start to go into the hospital, I would start to get, you know, nervous again. And that was a number of years. I, that doesn't happen now, but that was a long time before that went away. Um, and I think it was, for me, everything from day one has always been a very conscious decision of what I choose to allow myself to think about and not. And I know that sometimes a, a new idea for people that just because we have a thought doesn't mean we need to continue to think it, right? And so that thought would come into my brain, but I, I talk a lot about finding a mantra and that could be a, a religious verse, depending on what your you know religion is. So for me as a Christian, I have a Bible verse that I pray about her. Um, it could be if you you know don't have a religion, it could just be a feel good saying or an affirmation or a mantra that kind of calms your spirit. And so when those thoughts would come into my head, I would instantly you know come aware of it. You say okay, 
cancel that thought. I'm not going to think that anymore. And I would repeat my, um, my mantras and my Bible verse. And so my prayer that I pray over her, or even just that mantra of like, why not me? Why not me? Someone's kid's going to live. Why not me? And sometimes I would just say that over and over and over, um, until my brain would calm down, you know, um, I will say that, you know, she's now that she's 13 and, and kind of going through some puberty and stuff, she's been getting headaches and I don't know that that ever goes away. Right. My first thing is, okay, we need to have an MRI of her brain, (laughs) (laughs) you know, because we do know, you know, kids who've had cancer treatment have late effects and they're at risk for other cancers and things like that. And so I think it's also important having a, a pediatrician that you really trust and that isn't going to make you feel like you're crazy, but is also going to help you kind of lead through when are you being extreme and what's really reasonable. And so we took her to the doctor and I said, you know, she's getting these headaches and obviously this is where my brain is and should we have an MRI and all of this? And she's able to kind of say, okay, this is when it is important and maybe we should go and have this looked at. And this is maybe where we can go this way first. And also being, you know, conscious of, conscious of the fact that my daughter has been through so many doctors that she doesn't want to go to a doctor, right? So the idea that she would have to go and have an MRI to her, she's like, yeah, mom, I'm out. I'm not doing that, right? Um, so yeah, so kind of, and I think that's just a tightrope that you, that probably the rest of her life I will, um, I will have. But I do think the further you get out of it, the, the easier it becomes. And I also think it's being proactive. You know, um, one of the things that maybe is more scary for me is that now she's still 13, so I can force her to go to the survivor's clinic once a year. <laughs> I hear a lot of childhood cancer survivors that when they get to about 21 and they're, you know, out of college and stuff, they stop going. They don't want to go, you know. And what they do know is that the late effects if they're caught early on are more manageable. And so where the problems arise is the kids who kind of go, Hey, I'm done. I've been doing this my whole life. I'm not going anymore. And then when they do have complications, they were let to go on for a while. So, you know, I just kind of pray that that won't be her, that she'll always stay up on her care. And there are some new programs coming out that are helping cancer survivors who are adults be able to figure out their long-term care. Because one of the struggles is that a general you know, internal family medicine doctor isn't really going to know what to be looking for, for a childhood cancer survivor. And yet most of the survivors clinics only go up until 21, you know? And so fortunately, I think, I think Hyundai has a program there called their passport program where you can kind of download all of your medical records and it will tell you, these are the things that you should be looking for and telling your doctor about and being able to be proactive about. And really you have to become your own advocate, you know, um, which as a parent is difficult because we're used to being our kid's advocate and we don't want them to be their own advocate. I know. Yeah. That whole transition into adulthood is just magnified when you've had the experience that you guys have had. Yeah. And it's been interesting a couple of times, um, she hasn't wanted to go or she'll be scared to say, you know, uh, this is bothering me because she's had the experience of, you know, this was bothering me. I, I went to the hospital. I didn't leave for 78 days. Right. Um, so what I do know is if she does say, Hey, this hurts or I feel sick, like she's got to be really bad for her to say that because otherwise she won't say anything, you know? Um, 
So I think you do need to kind of know your kid a little, you know, and as a parent, you know your kid best. You're going to know your kid better than the doctors. You're going to know the kid better than nurses. Like you're the only person who's with your child all the time and trusting that you do know your child best um, and partnering with your, the medical, you know, staff. I think sometimes I see, and I, and I felt this way where you kind of feel like it's you against them and that's not really fair. You know, these people have dedicated their lives and a lot of their money to get a lot of schooling to be able to help our children and kind of seeing, like, I, I've started to shift and say, okay, rather than feeling like I'm playing this tennis game where it's me against, you know, the medical professionals, it's us playing double tennis together against her cancer and that this person's really on my side and they also really want what's best for my kid. And if you don't feel like that, then I think it's time to find a different doctor. You want to feel like this person's playing tennis with me um, and learning how to speak in a way that's not quite so maybe combative. You know, a lot of times I'll ask, well, is it reasonable to try this? Or if, a, if they've said, you know, um, well, we, you know, this is what we want to do and you don't feel comfortable with that. Just even saying like, okay, are there any other options that maybe we aren't exploring? Are there any other possibilities? Um, you know, being able to have those open conversations is really important, you know, and for her, particularly in the beginning, there, there wasn't really a lot of options. It wasn't like, oh, we could do this or we could do this. It was, this is what we're going to do. You have no choice. This is the only option. Um, yeah, and that's scary because you're like, I'm basically giving my kid over to strangers who I just met four hours ago in an emergency room, right? Right, totally. <laughs> Well, I love how you talk about your outlook and, you know, your manifestations and kind of the way that you've coped with all this. And you talk a little bit about having a grateful journal. Can you share how that helped you? Yeah. So we, looking back now, I just, it's so funny, right? When you look at things, you're like, how did I get through that? Um, so we check into the hospital where they are 24 hours and, uh, the insurance company calls me or the hospital calls me and they say, the insurance has dropped you, um, because I was getting divorced at the time. And so I had switched our insurance during that season of getting divorced. And so now they said, oh, well, she had a pre-existing condition. So we've dropped your insurance. And I remember saying to the hospital, uh, okay, well, how much is the bill so far? And they said $96,000. And I was like, oh, I'll have to get back to you on that. Right. So find out my kid has cancer. My insurance drop says um, I had just started uh, a new, I had just taken on a side project that was a big financial deal to help me kind of get out of the hole of financial mess that my divorce was leaving me in. And so I get a call from the, the I think it was the nephew or the son of the owner of that company while I'm in the oncology room. And he says, uh, you know, I have some bad news for you. The owner of the company had a, I think it was a massive stroke and dropped dead. And we don't know what's going to happen from this point. And I'll tell you, Katie, I started laughing. This is horrible, right? I started laughing because I was like, what else could possibly happen? <laughs> you know? Um, and so I just, I remember feeling like here I was in the middle of this crazy domestic violence divorce. I mean, I would be in the room with my daughter at one point and then in the parents' lounge with like my attorney at the same time, you know, back and forth. We were still in court. It was such a nightmare. So I felt like, um, everything around me was, was crashing. I felt very out of control. And I felt like all I could see were all of the horrible things that were happening. And 
I, I have the privilege, I will say, from before my daughter was diagnosed and before this happened, that I had spent 10 years working in personal development. That was kind of like my career, my field, and coaching people and, and working with women business owners and teaching, you know, uh, mindset and uh, coping skills and things like that. And so I knew from my background that, you know, what we focus on, what we allow our brain to focus on gets bigger, good or bad. That's how the brain works. It's kind of like when you get uh, a new car. And maybe you've never had a Jeep before, right? But now you're on the road and you're like, everybody has a Jeep. I had no idea everybody had Jeeps. Because once the brain has a thought, it starts to look for more of that. And so I knew that. And I was like, all I can see is all these horrible things that are happening. I'm like, I have to, re- I have to, cha- I have to shift my brain. Because otherwise, I'm just going to find, I want to start to create more horrible things because my brain's looking for it. And so I remember one night I sat down and I was like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to force my brain to focus on things that I can be grateful for. And the first night I listed, I think, 18 things. And the first one was just my mom. I was grateful that my mom was there and that she was willing to sleep in a hospital room with us overnight. You know, the second thing was my cousin. My cousin happened to be an oncology nurse and worked in the hospital next door. (laughs) So I was grateful that my cousin could be there and kind of talk to them. And so I just started listing everything I was grateful for. And then the second night I listed 19 things I could be grateful for. And I just, every night, you know, she'd lay in the hospital bed and I would sit there on, on my laptop and I would just list um, every possible little thing I could think of to be grateful for. And some of them were, you know, big things. Like we just got a great test that came back. And some of them were ridiculous things. Like I remember one time being like, I'm grateful that my friend brought me tweezers and socks to the hospital because my eyebrows really, really needed to be tweezers. Yeah, <laughs> right? that's a good friend. <laughs> yeah, I remember one time just being like, I'm because so, I never drank coffee before um, my daughter was in the hospital ever. I never was a coffee drinker. Now I'm an avid coffee drinker, and it started in the hospital. And I remember thinking, I'm just so grateful for whoever invented coffee yeah. because they would come in, in the morning and talk to me, and I'd be like, I'm half asleep. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I was grateful for, you know, she said a silly joke that made her laugh. And I was grateful for that. Um, And there were times when I literally was like, I am grateful a day is just 24 hours. And that's it, because that's all I can handle today. And I'm grateful that tomorrow is going to be another day. And what ended up happening was it did, it shifted my brain to seek out more and more of the things to be grateful for. And, you know, I still have that grateful journal. um, And what I now, when you look back and you realize that, that most of the things I had to be grateful for were not about what was happening around us. It was really the people that were part of that journey with us. I was grateful for the person who brought me dinner. I was grateful for the volunteer who sat with Emily so I could go take a shower. And I was grateful for the people. And that shifts your, pers- your perspective a lot um, because it's no longer dependent on your circumstances. You know, and also being grateful for the things that we take for granted, you know, things that we don't think of to be grateful. I mean, I feel like, you know, we live here in America and that alone gives us probably three pages of things that we can be grateful for compared to what other people in other parts of the world just go through on their daily basis. You know, um, even things, the fact that I have clean water. I mean, is that something that I really think of to take time to say, I'm really grateful that I have clean water because there's a large percentage of people in the United, in the world that don't, you know, I'm grateful that my daughter has enough food to eat and that she has TPN. And I'm grateful that my daughter has cancer in the United States where I'm not in a third world country where there would have been no hope. She would have been dead, you know? Um, 
so it just shifts your perspective and it really started to change my life. And I also think that I was somebody who always lived in the future. You know, I will be happy when I'll be happy when I achieve this, when I get this promotion, when I um, have this happen in my life. And that started in high school, right? I'll be happy when I graduate high school. I'll be happy when I get to college. I'll be happy when I graduate college. Like I was always living in the future of when something happened, I would be satisfied and happy. And it, shifted that completely because there's no future in cancer. You have no idea what the next day or the next week is going to bring. And it forces you to just be really grateful for that moment in that presence. And that was a big life change for me of not constantly looking for something in the future to make me satisfied or to, you know, where I would enjoy life. I just had to enjoy like today because I, tomorrow was very, very uncertain. And you know, when I talk about there's gifts that you can get from cancer, and obviously I wish I didn't have to go through that. I would never wish that on my worst enemy. It's, childhood cancer is absolutely horrific. Um, however, I can say there are things that I can take away from that experience and see value in them and gifts in them and what it's given me and how it's changed me. And I, you know, I think you can choose, right? You can change for the good. And to take that as a lesson and a gift and, and use that to become stronger and uh, a better version of yourself, or you can have it change you where you become really, you know, depressed and miserable and victimized and see this as a tragedy that, you know, you can't get past. And it amazes me because I see families who've lost their children. And I mean, that's a whole other, you know, bag that I, I don't even pretend to understand what that's like. I, I cannot even fathom the grief that goes in with that. And it's so curious to me because, um, you have people like the Kramers um, who lost their daughter, Maddie, and now are dedicated to bringing fun and life and laughter to other families with their nonprofit dancing while cancering. You know, um, you have somebody uh, like Rosaria, she, you know, lost her child and she created a podcast um, helping families deal with like uh, scanxiety, you know, the anxiety that goes around scans and dancers. And these are families who experience the absolute worst, worst of what childhood cancer has. And yet they still use their experience in a positive way to help other people. Right. So it's just, those are the people that amaze me that their strength and their resiliency and their ability to take the most tragic thing that could happen to a family and find a way to turn that into a good, like, oh my gosh, I just get overwhelmed with that. Like that to me is amazing. Um, well, you are so amazing yeah. yourself. You are amazing yourself. So, um, I mean, the, the, the mindset that you were able not only to actually practice and implement, but that you demonstrated for Emily to be able to observe. I mean, because you had that mindset, you were able to create things during a terrible experience and make them not terrible. And you did that within yourself. I mean, that's just an amazing thing. Can you tell us about how you did that with, with Emily and how you guys would take an eight hour tumor or tumor removal surgery and what you did after that? Yeah. So, um, I think it's very important. And I talk a lot about this with parents is that we are the mirror for our children and whether it's cancer or any other illness or disease, what we know about that is way different than what our children know about that. And it's kind of like, if, if you take the medical part out of it, we understand that when we're having a super stressed day and we're anxious, right? When, it, when are our child, when are our children the worst, right? When are they acting out? When are they driving us the most mm -hmm. crazy? And you're like, I'm having a bad day. Yeah. Why can't you just for today? 
And it's because they're picking up on our energy. They're picking up on our stress. And that's why it's causing them to now have anxiety and stress. And so it's not because they're just choosing this day to be a, you know, a terror child. It's because we're making them that way with our energy and our stress. And so if we think about it that way, then when you put that in a medical situation, now just heighten that by 100, right? And our children look to us to see if they should be scared. It's like when they fall, when they're little, right? They don't start crying right away. They look to us to go, should I, should I, what does mom's face say? Am I hurt? Am I not hurt? Mom, you tell me if I'm hurt, right? And if mom looks terrified, they burst into tears. And if mom's like, oh, you silly, get up. They're like, oh, I guess I'm not hurt. Mom doesn't think I'm hurt. So in the medical world, that's how our children view us. And so my, my goal was to make everything as fun and as non-scary as possible. And there were a number of reasons behind that. One, it was probably for me, it was my way of feeling like I had some control. It was the way I chose to cope. Um, there's you have zero control. The reality is you have zero control in these medical diagnoses. And it was the only way I felt like I could have control. You know, I couldn't control the cancer or the outcome or the drugs or any of that, but I could control how we experienced it. And I was going to make sure we were having a lot of fun, particularly in the beginning when I didn't know if she was going to live. And I thought if I only have a few more weeks or a few more months with my daughter, I am not going to sit here and cry and have my last memories with her be miserable. Like we are going to have fun. So it was very deliberate. Um, and it was also so that she wouldn't be scared, that she wouldn't be, you know, um, afraid and that I wanted her to have a will to fight. You know, I didn't want her to give up. I wanted her to fight. And keeping things fun, it kept her energy high, right? Kept her spirits high. And so everything we did was about a party, celebrating every single milestone. So we would do theme parties. So when you talk about the tumor one, that was probably the one people remember the most. Um, I had asked, initially my thought was I wanted that surgeon to give me a piece of her tumor and I wanted to have a <laughs> ceremonial flushing of the tumor down the toilet party and like, you know, kind of this big party around it. And I remember her surgeon being like, Tara, I, I cannot give you a piece of her tumor. <laughs> and I was like, why not? I just need a little piece. And she's like, that's like biohazardous waste. I was like, oh, all right. How can we work around this? So she's like, I can take pictures for you. So I was like, all right, that sounds like a fair deal. So she took pictures and one is this picture of this disgusting looking tumor. I mean, it's just it's like a little bloody heart. It's so gross. And, uh, I took it to the local coffee shop and I had them blow it up into a huge poster. And then I had them make tons of copies of it. And we had, once she was, you know, where she could walk again, right. Get out of surgery, walk again, you know, down the road. Um, we had a tumor stomping party and I bought her these little banana slippers because her nickname is monkey. And so I bought her little banana slippers and we had everybody, you know, come over and we brought cupcakes and we played music and she ceremoniously stomped on all of the pictures of the tumor and then sat on the hospital floor and ripped them all up. And we, you know, told stupid tumor, he could take a hike and we hated stupid tumor and we laughed at him and we made fun of him and we, you know, bullied him. And then we took, you probably know your child life, you know, those, they're like plastic tubes that you shoot marshmallows with and they're to help open up your lungs. We call marshmallow shooters. We used those and we shot the poster with marshmallows and that we were shooting stupid tumor and, you know, take that stupid tumor. And then we had, all of her medical staff and, you know, friends and everybody come in and sign the poster. We still have a poster in my attic and they would write things, you know, like stupid tumor, you messed with the wrong kid and Emily's a miracle kid and take that stupid tumor and we're glad you're out. And, you know, all this kind of like being mean to the tumor 
Yeah. And so for her, this was like a huge victory. Like stupid tumor has no friends. Look at all the friends I have. Everybody's making fun of stupid tumor, like nana, nana, boo, boo. I mean, we think that's funny, right? But this is what kids do, right? This is like kids world, right? And so it was this very empowering sense of you're stronger than your tumor. Um, we decorated her room all the time. I'm very big into the environment that you're in. So everything had to be very light, very life-giving. Um, I think, you know, whether that's you bring pillows from home or blankets from home or their favorite stuffed animals, we're very into the stuffed animals all had, you know, personalities, lives of their own. So if we had to go through the hospital or go to a different room, um, the stuffed animals would fight over who would get to come. And then Emily, of course, would have to choose because she was in charge. And then the stuffed animals would, you know, be jealous of each other, of who got to go to get the MRI or who got to go to get the CAT scan. Um, even just she had a pulse ox on her toe, you know, for gosh, like months and months and months. And they would have to change from one toe to the, you know, from one big toe to the other because the toe would get so raw from having this pulse ox on. It was so horrible. And so we had, we called it the teasing toe. And the toes would fight over who would get to wear the pulse socks. And I would take her foot and I'd be like, Nana, Nana, I want to wear it. I want to wear it. It's my turn. No fair. You wore it last time. No, pick me, pick me. And her feet would, you know, again, this is kids world, right? They would fight. And then she would get to choose which toe got to wear the light. And of course, the other one would be devastated and would be crying. And the other one would tease it and be like, see, she picked me. And so we just did everything to make it silly. You know, she had a, a broviac with two different lines that she would have her, you know, to flush and they would fight over who would get flushed first and who would get to take the chemo. And so everything was very fun, very silly. Um, when she would get chemo, we would call it uh, that we were doing karate, karate chop chemo and that the chemo was going in and it was going through her body and it was going to chop up all the, the um, chemo or that all the cancer, right? And so I would jump around the room like a crazy person doing karate chops and just, you know, kidding, I've, I've never done any martial arts. So it's <laughs> hysterical looking, but it would be like chop, chop, chop. And we'd make up songs and we'd make up, you know, silly songs and silly dances. And, um, oh gosh, what, it, because we, what was the correct, what was the chemo song? Would you, we do one, two, three, four, I declare an owie war, oh. you know, and then five, six, seven, eight champions. We called her Broviac champions. Champions are owie baits, nine, 10, I'm home again. I'm home again. Um, don't mess with me. Don't mess with me. I'm Emily. That's what we used to sing. Oh my gosh. That is so <laughs> that a long time. stinking cute. And I'm so impressed that you yeah. remember that. You said that many times, I, didn't uh, you? Yeah, right. Many, many times. I'm like, wow, I haven't said that years. Um, but yeah, so we used to do that. Um, we had a little uh, chipmunk, and this was her favorite. We would do this little chipmunk hand puppet. It was like a little finger puppet, and he would do that. Um, if you don't do the chipmunk cheer, I'll stick my tail inside your ear. And so we would ask the doctors and the nurses to come in and do the chipmunk cheer. And if they wouldn't do it, we would like tease them with the chipmunk, you know. So it was just all about being silly. And I think you know, sometimes I think as parents, we think, oh, I don't know how to do that. And that's really not true because we were all children. Like we all did this as children. So it's really just kind of going back to who we were years ago and finding that silly. And it's interesting. I was just talking to somebody about this, that, you know, if you have a three-year-old, right, and you're not in the hospital and they want to play Barbie or they want to play Transformers or like my nephews are huge into dinosaurs. They play with dinosaurs, right? We're very comfortable sitting on the ground, playing with dinosaurs, that it's silly, 
and that it's fun and we're taking the dinosaur and we're like, rawr, rawr, rawr. But then you take that same thing and you put it in a hospital and all of a sudden it's like, ooh, can't do that. Can't have fun in the hospital. We're in a hospital, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And we're taking children out of their environment where they're laughing all day and they're having fun all day. And then we stick them in the hospital where you can't laugh, you can't have fun, mom cries all the time, everything's very somber. And then we wonder why they're like, dude, I, I want to give up. I don't want to fight. Like, if this is my life now, because they don't have a sense of this is temporary, right? They don't have a sense of like, okay, this is just right now, but you'll get to go home. It's just now this is their world. And who wants to live in that world? Right. And so not only with your daughter, have you done that, but um, talk to us about your passion project, your company, your president, your CEO, <laughs> you're an author, you've done all of these things, making cancer fun. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was never something I intended to do. <laughs> Just so you know, off the bat, I think like most parents, it was let's get through this and let's go back to the real world. Um, and I just started meeting, you know, people who, everyone who had, who saw what we did, everyone who had followed us on our journey kept saying, you need to share what you did. You need to share what you did. And I was like, I really don't want to, you know, why would I do that? I remember saying to somebody, I'm like, why would anybody read a book about this? Cause everybody kept saying, write a book, write a book. Right. And I'm like, why would anybody write a book about this? Why, you know, why would I write a book about this? And she said to me, she worked in oncology and she said, Taris, when Emily was diagnosed, if somebody had said there was a book on how to make cancer fun for her, would you have read it? And I was like, oh, of course I would have, right? And she said, well, that's who's going to read it then. <laughs> and I thought, huh, okay. And it was really, really, it was meeting families that were in such shock and grief and fear, and they wanted to help their kids, and they wanted to support their kids, and they didn't know how. And I felt like here I have all of these tools and part of it is my background. So I went to college for theater. You know, I was doing improv in New York. I, my first job out of college was with a childhood theater touring company. So I had this kind of different background, obviously, than most parents. I had all these years in personal development and mindset and growth. And so just a skill set that the average person probably doesn't bring into the childhood cancer world. And I thought, I have all these tools. I, I know all of this stuff. And it's selfish of me not to share it. And if I can help another family, I have an obligation to do that. And that's really when started, things started to change. If I just, I saw these families and my heart was not just broken for the parents, but really for the children, because I knew that their experience was night and day difference from what my daughter experienced. And I see how my daughter is now and how she talks about her cancer and her comfort with her cancer. And, you know, even just recently, she wanted a bikini last summer. We live at the Jersey Shore and I didn't, everybody has their own points of view, but mine was, I didn't want my daughter in a bikini. And uh, she said to me, well, mom, you should encourage me to wear a bikini. You should be glad that I don't care about all of the scars because she's got quite a lot of battle scars, right? And she's like, you should be glad that I don't care about my scars and that I'm comfortable enough that I would wear a bikini and that you should think this is a great thing. I mean, how do you argue with that, right? (laughs) I mean, it's a pretty good argument. (laughs) It is. My daughter, she won. She got the bikini. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's funny. (laughs) Um, But even stuff like that, like she's totally comfortable in her body. She's totally comfortable with her hearing aids and, and who she is and what she's been through. And she's comfortable talking about it. And she has a totally different experience. Um, than another, than another kid. Right. And I, I want other families to be able to 
I guess, choose their own path. You don't have to choose mine, but that you have a choice of how you want to experience cancer. And I think most of us, when we first get that diagnosis, feel like we don't have a choice and that this is happening to us and that there's nothing we can do. And that's, you can't change the outcome, but you can change the journey, I guess, type thing. Um, so I ended up writing a book and it was really crazy that uh, it's opened up so many other doors now and meeting so many families and parents who are reading it and going, oh my gosh, like, I, I wish I had had this when we first got diagnosed or this has helped so much. I ended up then doing a uh, TEDx talk all about choosing fun going through childhood cancer. And that was a pretty cool experience because I ended up doing a lot of research about the science behind fun and what happens to the body and versus when the body's in fear and how children. Yeah. It was, it was interesting for me because it was stuff that's like, okay, this is what I've been talking about, but now I actually have some studies. Right. For sure. <laughs> back it up, which is always great. Um, and so now the project that, so we, I have a website and, and we have started to do teaming up with bringing experts to come on and do webinars and share their expertise um, with our community. So for example, I have an oncology nurse who's part of our advisory board and she has 30 years working with families and she did a whole thing on how to help a child transition back to school uh, after a childhood cancer diagnosis. I have another woman who's also part of our advisory board. She's a child life specialist and how to support siblings who uh, are going through a childhood cancer diagnosis, you know, and they're not the patient. So it's been really cool to have these people like you who have, you know, expertise and training in areas that I don't to be able to learn from them and share that. Um, and so uh, what I've been doing now, the two things that I'm, I'm working on now is I have a workbook for kids that is it's written. It's just the illustrations aren't done yet. So we're still waiting on getting the illustrations from the illustrator and get it all nice, get ready for that to be published. Um, so I'm excited about that because it's kind of what I wish I had had for my daughter to kind of help her talk about her cancer and it's got a parent's guide to help parents facilitate conversations. And I've had some incredible professionals, um, a child life specialist, a PhD, um, you know, who works with childhood cancer survivors, get their input to make sure that it's relevant and uh, will be valuable for families. So we've that in the works. And then currently looking for nonprofits that either offer like a bag for newly diagnosed families or a welcome packet or something like that that would want to get the book out there to their families. Because my vision, my, my dream is that every family who has a childhood cancer diagnosis would be provided with this resource for the parents. And I know we're very quick to want to provide stuff for the children, you know, toys for the kids and iPads for the kids and stuff like that. But if you go back to what we were talking about originally, Katie, about parents being the mirror for the kids, I feel providing the parents with the tools and the resources is the first step because they're going to be able to impact their child's experience more than any toy is, right? Or an iPad or anything like that. So my, my heart is that all of these families would be able to have access to this resource so that they can, even if they just take one thing that works for them, right? Like maybe everything doesn't resonate with them, but maybe there's a couple of things that do, and that will positively impact their journey in a different way. Would you mind just telling us kind of what Emily has taught you through her 13 years and um, the impact that she's had on you? Well, it was such a tough question for you to ask me right now. And I will tell you, I keep having this conversation. We just registered her for her high school classes. And Katie, every time I think about it, I have been bursting into tears. And I feel like it, it's getting ridiculous. Like in public places, I was in a restaurant last night and somebody asked me about it. I started crying in the restaurant. Um, over the holidays, we were at my mom's for a holiday party. One of her friends asked me in the middle of my mom's living room in front of everybody, I started crying. 
Like, and the only thing I can equate it to is when parents have their children go to kindergarten and the moms are hysterical or the dad's hysterical, whatever, who's parenting the child at the time, like full time. And, uh, and I never had that because I was in such crisis mode. And that by the time she got to kindergarten and we were finally just getting out of cancer treatment, um, I was just so relieved that somebody would watch her for a few hours every day that I didn't have to pay as a single parent that I was like, oh, thank you. So I never, and I felt guilty about that, but I never had that experience of just being, you know, devastated that she was going to kindergarten. So I think maybe I'm having that now. Because I've been so emotional, um, but she is just she is, and I think every parent has a, a childhood cancer survivor, or, or even if they're not a survivor, any parent who has a childhood cancer warrior says this: they're just the bravest, strongest people that we ever meet. Like they are so brave and so strong in a way that we're not. Um, and my daughter is silly; she's got quick, quick wit that she makes me laugh so much. And it brings so much life. Uh, I'll give you an example. The other day, she said um, she wanted me to pick her up like a pliable. And she sent me a text message from school. Mom, will you pick me up a pliable after school? Um, and I texted her back because I didn't want to. And I texted her back and I said, Em, I already gave you lots of life. I feel like I've done enough for you already. And she said to me, but, but the happiness that I would get from eating the pliable would extend my life. <laughs> Like she's just a funny kid, and she keeps me laughing, and it, and I think that's so great because when I get stressed or I feel overwhelmed or I feel like oh you know still being a single parent like all the struggles that come along with that that have nothing to do with medical stuff, um, she just helps me laugh and like is just she's silly and she's also probably the most generous giving person I've ever met. She gets more excited about Christmas and what she's going to give everybody else. She will never talk about what she wants. She is just really excited about that she's getting to give everybody else a gift. And and also learning to appreciate that, you know, she's a completely different person than me. Her personality is completely different. Um, and appreciating who she is, not who I want her to be. And I think when you learn to do that, then that trans transpires over into every other relationship that we have with people, that we really start to appreciate people for just truly who they are, not you know, who we wish they were or who we wanted them to be or who we expect them to be. But just if we want to be accepted for who we are, then accepting other people for who they are. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to Tara's story in this podcast. You can listen to Tara's TED Talk and learn more about her company at makingcancerfun.com. I will also link to all the ways to follow her on the show notes page. Please share this episode with friends and family. I think Tara has a lot of great insight, not only about how to cope with having a child that has cancer, but also just a really positive way to live and view life. Please subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends, rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people get to know us. And make sure you're following along Child Life on Call on Facebook and Instagram to get our most up-to-date information.